Turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. I'm going to read verses 11 to 15. We're going to only get through verses 11 through 12 today. So 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. God, as we have heard your word now, we pray for our own hearts that we would receive your word, that we would be like the good soil where the seed of the word is planted and that it would be nourished and watered and that it would grow up and bear much fruit. We pray for this time now that your spirit would work in our hearts so that your word might bear fruit in us making us more like Christ, living in a way that pleases you, and having hearts that love you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you have been in situations of conflict, situations where relationships have been strained. And maybe people have said things about you that are not true. And they've characterized you as doing something or being a certain kind of person. And it's not true. The problem is that any attempt for you to defend yourself only goes to more prove their points, the accusations that they might be saying about you. And so, for example, if you get accused of being a liar, what are you going to say? How are you going to defend yourself? Because anything that you say, the response will just be, well, that's a lie. You're lying. So there's really nothing that you can say to defend yourself sometimes when people are against you and people uh, have a conflict with you. And sometimes even there are other people who get involved and other people believe what is said about you. 
And sometimes that hurts even more, that there would be people who would believe what someone else says. What do you do? Well, if you have been with us in 2 Corinthians from the beginning, you know that this is the kind of situation that Paul has been dealing with, with the Corinthians. Uh, There has been uh, some group of people, these teachers that have come in, and they have sought to turn the hearts of the church away from Paul and towards them. And there has even been some group, maybe a small group in the church, that has turned against Paul. And they have been laying these accusations against him uh, in front of him. And they have been saying things like the fact that Paul doesn't keep his commitments. Paul doesn't keep his word. Paul is not a real apostle. He's not legitimate because he's not like these other people. And so what's Paul going to say? How's Paul going to defend himself? Well, we've seen in many parts of this letter, and we see it again in this part of the letter, that Paul lets his life do the talking. He lives a life of the fear of God and a life of sincerity and integrity so that his life can be his defense. And we know that there are some people who are just bent on not liking you and bent on misinterpreting you, and you can't do anything about those people. But for the most part, for those who have the Spirit of God at work in them, If you live this kind of life, people will be able to see it. People will be able to tell if you are what other people are saying about you or you are someone who truly lives a life before God. And so that is the message, the lesson for us today, that we need to live this kind of life. Live a life in the fear of God and live a life of sincerity. Live a life so that people can see who you really are, that you're truly following Christ. So let's look at this passage, and we divide it into those two parts, living in fear and being sincere, living in sincerity. Paul tells us first that he lives in fear. Not fear of other things or other people, but the fear of God. It says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, he said things like this before in verse 9. He says that he makes it his aim to please Christ. His goal is to please Christ not people. He said in verse 10 that he knows that he must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so he's living his life in, fa- in, in the light of the fact that he is going to give an account to God, not an account to other people, not an account to these false teachers in Corinth. He doesn't have to explain to them his life. He's going to have to give an account to God for his life. He knows he's going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And then here in verse 11, he starts again with this word, therefore. And so he's telling us basically the same thing. Therefore, in light of the fact that I'm going to have to see God at the judgments, I know the fear of the Lord. And so I persuade others. So we are to know the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, I once heard someone say that if you hear someone explain the fear of the Lord, and the first thing they say is, fear doesn't really mean fear, then just stop listening. But that's often what people say, isn't it? The fear of the Lord isn't really fear. Well, then why is it the fear of the Lord? It's not snuggles and cuddles of the Lord. That's not what we are meant to feel. We are meant to feel fear of the Lord. There is a sense in which to fear the Lord is to be afraid. We're afraid of the Lord because the Bible tells us that God is an all-consuming fire. And we are sinful people. So what happens when you put something flammable up to something that is a very strong fire? It's going to burn up. We as sinful people cannot be in the presence of an all-consuming fire. And so we should be afraid. Fear the all-consuming fire. In fact, it's foolishness to not fear something so dangerous. Maybe some of you have heard of Grizzly Man. He's a man who spent his life uh, researching grizzly bears, and so he would often go every summer to Alaska to study them, and he became a little bit too close to the grizzlies. Uh, He started to have this idea that he could talk to them, that he could have relationships and friendships with these grizzlies, and he would even play with them. And so he would wrestle with these giant grizzly bears. Well, I'll give you one guess how the story ends. The story ends with one summer, grizzly man never coming back because he got eaten by a grizzly. When you don't have an appropriate fear of grizzlies, you will get eaten by one. Knowing the strength of a grizzly bear, knowing those sharp teeth and sharp claws should cause you to have an appropriate response, which is to keep your distance from a grizzly bear. And you're a fool if you don't. You're a fool if you do not fear the Lord. We should have an appropriate reverence and awe of God, knowing that he is the holy God, the all-consuming fire. But what's interesting about the fear of the Lord is that the same God who terrorizes us is the God who 
we are in awe of and we want to draw near to. I think when Moses saw the burning bush, he sees it burning and he is fascinated by it. It says he wants to come near to see this bush that is not consumed. And God tells him, take off your sandals. Do not come near. This is holy ground. And so at the same time, he is fascinated by it, drawn near to it. And yet he is told not to come near. Because the fear of the Lord, the terror of it also produces awe in us. And this awe should lead us to love God. And both of those things can be true. You can love God and you can be afraid of him. If you understand how those two things work together. If you are in a thunderstorm and there is heavy thunder and lightning and storm. And if you're out in the middle of nowhere with no supplies, you are afraid that this thunder and lightning is going to lead to your death. But you can watch the same thunderstorm from your house and realize that you are completely safe. And you can understand and appreciate the loudness of the thunder and the dangers of the storm, and yet you know that you are safe because you are in that house. And that is what the fear of the Lord does for us. Because we have Christ, because we have a mediator, Because we have someone who can pay for our sins to allow us to enter into the presence of the all-consuming fire. We can at the same time recognize how holy he is and recognize that we are able to draw near by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through Christ that we recognize we are safe and yet... God is no less holy. God hasn't just forgotten about my sins. God has dealt with my sins. God is holy, and so he has placed the punishment for my sins all upon Jesus at the cross. So God is the all-consuming fire, yet through Christ I can draw near. There's a good illustration, I think, of this in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In the book Silver Chair, uh, there's a character named Jill, and she meets Aslan, I think, for the first time. And of course, Aslan represents Christ. And so she's being led to this river, and she's very thirsty. But she gets to the river, and she finds laying beside the river giant lion. And so the lion says, Are you not thirsty? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. And Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, 
Women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So this is the fear of the Lord. Do you notice how she is afraid of him? And yet she, she almost without thinking, she takes closer and closer steps. There is no guarantee that this lion will not swallow up girls and boys. And yet she is drawn to this lion. And she knows there is no other stream. And that's how we feel. To who else can we go? Only Christ has the words of eternal life. And yet he is an all-consuming fire. So the fear of the Lord is to recognize that everything that you do is done in the presence of God. It's to recognize that God is is judge who cares about our sins. He's holy. And we are afraid of displeasing this judge. But it also means we are in awe of him. And we love him. And we want to please him. Because we've been drawn to him. We get to know him and have a relationship with him. And so this needs to motivate your life. If your motivation in life is to improve yourself, to just be a better person, well, that's not going to last. Everybody makes New Year's resolutions, and they, they stop after a few weeks or months. These, these resolutions don't last because they are just this desire to be better, whatever that means. But knowing the fear of the Lord wanting to please this great God, that will last. So Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Verse 11. He lives a life of persuading others. Uh, You're going to see it in verse 20 where he says that he is an ambassador for Christ and he implores them on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God he begs people to be reconciled to God Paul is not just a teacher who presents a bunch of facts he doesn't just have a a powerpoint presentation and say look everybody here's what Jesus has done for some people somewhere if you feel like you want Jesus let me know he doesn't say that He says, I'm begging you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Knowing the fear of the Lord, he persuades others. He seeks to convince other people. We can't force other people to be Christians. Constantine can go sprinkle water on a bunch of people and call them Christians, but they're not real Christians. We can't force people to be Christians in the real sense But we are called to convince people 
to persuade. Acts 17, Paul persuades people using logic, using philosophy at Mars Hill. In Acts 26, he preaches to King Agrippa and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I know you do. And Agrippa says, would you persuade me in such a short time to be a Christian? See, Paul's ministry was about persuading people. I wonder if you try to persuade people about the word of God or about the gospel. None of us likes a salesman. None of us likes the salesman who comes to our house and will not leave us alone or leave our house until we have given them some money and bought some product. Nobody wants to be a salesman for Christ. And we don't like manipulating people and putting pressure on people. But it does seem that we could do a little bit more persuading of others. And maybe especially in the Reformed world, we think, well, if if I try to persuade, I might give people the false impression that they have free will. And I don't want them to think they have free will and that they actually do something to save themselves. So I'm not going to tell them to do anything. I'm just going to present some facts. Jesus died on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit will persuade them if the Holy Spirit wants them to be saved. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit uses people. He uses people who will seek to persuade unbelievers. And then the Spirit, yes, has to do the work. So we can't ultimately convince people, but our job is to persuade. Appeal to people. Use logic Appeal even to their emotions. Have, you've probably read Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he says that we're all like spiders hanging over a pit of fire, hanging by one little thread, and at any moment God could break the thread and the spider will fall into the fire and die. And that's your life. At any moment, you could fall into the fires of hell, and there you will be forever. That's a very emotional sermon. Because he's trying to persuade people to wake up. Understand the reality of your life. Do you persuade others? So, Paul says... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Why is he saying that? Because he's trying to defend his ministry to the critics. He's trying to say, as we'll get to in verse 13 later, these people, you're accusing me of being nuts. You think I'm beside myself. You think I've I've gone crazy. I'm not nuts. I just love people and I'm trying to persuade them because I know the fear of the Lord. I know what it's like to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So I'm not crazy. And Paul's saying he's a real apostle. 
He's a real apostle because he lives in the fear of the Lord, and so he persuades others. So that's the first part. Second part of this passage, he tells us about his sincerity, his genuine godly life. So remember, he wants his life to do the talking. People will misinterpret things that he says or does. Some people are bent on not believing him, and they will be his critics forever. That doesn't matter. For the most part, Paul knows he's going to appeal to the Corinthians that most of the people in the church, they will be able to tell based on his life that he is a true apostle. So look at the second part of verse 11. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. God knows my life. I live in the fear of the Lord. And I hope your conscience can tell you if I am living as a godly man. He's just saying, Corinthians, think about it. What do you think about me? What do you think when those people say that I'm too weak to be an apostle? What do you think when those Corinthians say that I don't keep my word? And I've told you, I told you the explanation of why, why I didn't make it, why I didn't travel to Corinth. So are you going to think that I'm lying about that? Or are you going to believe me? Are you going to think that my weakness is proof that I'm an apostle? Or are you going to think it's proof that I'm not an apostle? Your conscience will tell you. You have seen me. You have known me. I've lived with you. I've preached to you. What do you think? So, these passages, this passage tells us, it, it reminds us that... There are times when you, even as a Christian, will be, uh, have conflict. When people will not believe things that you say. People will misinterpret things that you say. People will say false things about you. You can appeal to their conscience. How did you live in front of them? We know that even Jesus had this happen to him. Jesus was betrayed. We have Psalm 55, which is a prophecy of Jesus, but also a Psalm of David, where he says, if it was just some other guy, I could handle this, but it was my friend, my close companion. We used to take sweet counsel together. We used to go up to the house of God together. And then he betrays me. He says his words were as smooth as butter, but they were actually drawn swords. There are people who may appear to everyone else to be smooth as butter. 
and yet they attack you. They are your friends, and yet they hurt you. But people should be able to tell by your life, appealing to their conscience, that you are sincere in seeking to please God. Peter talks about this, and he also tells us that even outsiders will say false things about us. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So, we see there, when they speak against you as evildoers, it's going to happen. Outsiders will speak evil of you. There will be ignorant, foolish people who will say ignorant, foolish things about you. How should you respond? Keep your conduct honorable, he says, so that they see your good deeds even as they are insulting you. So that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live a life of integrity. Live a life of godliness. Live a life so that in front of other people, when people hear things about you, they will not believe the things that are said about you. For us as parents, we are called to live a life of integrity in our homes, in front of our children. It's very easy to come to church and look very pious and holy. It's very easy to have everything put together in front of other people in church, but it's in the home where your family sees who you really are. And so you should seek to live a life that is the real you at home that is godly. You know, appeal to the conscience of your family. Appeal to the conscience of your children. And when our children grow up, they might have all kinds of things to say about our flaws and the ways that we failed as parents, but at the very least, I hope that our children will say, yes, in my conscience, I know that dad or mom sought to live a godly life. All the time, in private, not just in front of everybody else. Sure, they made mistakes. Sure, they sinned. When they sinned, they confessed they repented, they grew, they sought to change. Parents, appeal to the conscience of your children that they know how you sought to live. For some of you, it may be at work. It may be with siblings, maybe the older siblings, maybe with parents who are now, you are adults, but your parents you live around them and you are called to live a life that shows that before them 
you seek to be godly. So Paul says in verse 12 that he wants to give them cause to boast about him. He's not trying to brag about himself. Talking about his fear of the Lord, his persuading of others. He's trying to give them cause to boast. In other words, he's saying, I want you guys now to stand up and defend me. I want you to tell these people everything that I've just told you. In chapter 3, I'm a minister of the new covenant. I want you to tell them that. I want you to tell them that I give an open statement of the truth. I don't tamper with God's word. Chapter 4. I want you to tell them that I'm a jar of clay. I want you to tell them that, that uh, I live for an eternal weight of glory. I want you to tell them that I make it my aim to please Christ. Chapter 5. So all of these things, Paul is saying, I'm presenting them to you so that you will boast about me. So that you will defend me as a man who is godly and lives a life of integrity. And then he says why in verse 12. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. I want you to be able to answer people. People in Corinth who are boasting about outward appearance and not the heart. I think verse 12 might be the key verse of the whole letter, if not one of them. Everything is about Paul appealing to his heart and not outward appearance. The other people, they are seeking to draw attention to their outward appearance. It might be literally the way that they look. It might be outward things that can easily be measured, like numbers. But they don't have what really matters, which is the heart. They're not living lives of integrity. The word here for the outward appearance is literally just the word face. They're boasting about the face. In other words, they're just putting on an appearance. We would say they put their best foot forward. They're just putting up a front. It's all about the face, but not the heart. Paul says what matters is the heart. And that is true for all of us. Whether you're a preacher or an apostle or not, what really matters for you is the heart. You can put on a face to come to church. You can put on a face in front of other people. And you can trick all of us. You can make all of us think that you're godly. And you can have either secret sin in your life. Or you just have a heart that doesn't truly love Christ and doesn't commune with Christ as much as you want other people to think that you do. And you need to remember what matters is not how you look on the outside to others. What matters is your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, 
above all else, guard your heart. Watch your heart. I heard that verse as a teenager in every dating book, and I was just told that that was only about dating, guarding your heart from giving it away to a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It's not about that. It's about watching over your heart to know that your heart loves Christ. Because from the heart flow all the springs of life, all the issues of life. Everything of who you really are ultimately is going to come out, no matter what face you put on. So do you keep your heart to seek to live a holy life before God? Are you seeking right now to put away sin, even sin that people don't even know about, but sin that is in your heart? Are you thinking and watching over your heart to know what things cause temptation so that you can get rid of those things? And are you seeking to have your heart focused upon Christ and communion with God, loving Christ more, living for his glory, thinking about heaven more, thinking about eternity, knowing the fear of the Lord and the judgment seat of Christ. This is what we're called to do. Keep the heart with all vigilance. So when we face these times of conflict, when people might say things about you, what you need to do is live a life before those things happen. Live a life of sincerity. Live a life in the fear of God so that you can respond like Paul does. What I am is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. You know my life, and our life is our self-defense. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, seated on his throne. To be like John and fall upon our face when we see him. To know the fear of you. To know it daily and to live in light of the fear of, of you. We pray also, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to watch over our hearts. That we would not boast about what we show in front of others. But that we would boast about knowing you that we would have communion with you in secret that no one may ever know about, 
but we live a life of integrity before you. We pray that you would give us your grace for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.